Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good movement, and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Movement by Laura podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings everywhere. Today's podcast is sponsored by my online daily lit classes. That stands for Lara's Yoga Training. I'll get into that a little bit more, but right now I'm going to answer some questions that you have sent me. I literally got about 200 questions when I did a, a Q&A on um, Instagram stories and I could not get to them all. So I screenshotted and I'm answering them now. So here we go. This is my Q&A. First of all, someone wrote, how do you release the fear that your body holds, that physical fear that holds you back? So I think that fear is um, something that we have to investigate. I've come up with an acronym for it. And the fear acronym has to do with what is driving the fear. So F would be fact, factual. E would be envy. A would be anger and R would be regret. So the last three are kind of the bummer things <laughs> that drive fear. And so I'll kind of address those before I, I address the F, which is factual. So envy is we're fearful um, because it's driven from this place of envy or wanting something that somebody else has. And then having this this emotion, which we can label fear, that we are, we don't have that or we'll never have it. You know, so we see someone successful or we see someone excelling at something or mastering something or projecting uh, beauty, you know, in this superficial way, meaning that's only what you can see, not on the inside, but, and we have a response to that. And sometimes that response is then channeled into fear. So we, that makes us fearful to try and, you know, progress in our own way. And so that's just interesting to decipher. The A part of fear is anger. Like we can be fearful because we're angry about something. Like something has happened, for instance, when you've had an injury and it's a very natural emotion to have anger when you've been sidelined from an injury. And that can 
lead to fear because of all of the responses that you had. You know, you had an injury or some kind of setback, had anger because of that because you could no longer do the things you wanted to or you were no longer progressing in the way you had anticipated. And then there becomes the the last kind of phase of that is fear that you'll never get back what you had, that you'll never get whatever it is you want to be able to do. So if anybody's had an injury and say they were really a successful athlete, um, there there's the anger of of being sidelined and missing out and not progressing and that, that can also ultimately be expressed in fear, like I'm never going to be good again or I'm not going to be able to do this. So just teasing that out, is that fear coming from these latent emotions? And then R is regret, like the regret of not having done something you wanted to do or and and the fear with that, you know, and that comes a lot with aging, you know, with when we, I see that a lot with people who, use their aging almost as an excuse to be fearful of something. And I think that has to do with there's some latent um, regret subconsciously or not about not doing something earlier. You know, so for instance, I've, I've worked with people in physical therapy who have not treated themselves very well physically. And then at a certain point, the the engine kind of starts to shut down, so to speak. The the, the body starts to re respond to that, and then there comes this whole like, "Wow, I really should have started doing this earlier. I wish I had, you know, taken up yoga or moved my body or done something besides just this one thing, running or whatever it is, or not running or over and over again." And then there's this so there's this sense of regret. And that actually produces a fear of of not um, ever thinking you're going to be able to do it or get back that time that you lost. So what I would say about those three things is they're emotions, but just recognize them as such and don't let them guide you and lead to fear that's going to prevent you from going forward in your movement patterns, in your behavioral patterns, and so forth. The F part of fear is the actual real fear, like factual. You know, there's a bear in front of you. That's a, you should have a fear response. That's a fact that if that a bear could have some kind of response that would be dangerous to you, there's a fast moving car coming right at you. You should have some fear with that. Um, you, you know, you lost your job and you have no money and you owe stuff. There's fear. That's a fact. That there's a fact to that, and it doesn't mean that 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 should just absolutely paralyze you. But you can at least recognize that that's that's a factual source of fear. Like it's reality. Like that's a realistic. Re, you know, that's a good reason that you have some fear. So I think all of these things um, are ways to identify where our fear is coming from. So this person asks, how do you release the fear that your body holds? Well, I think identifying why you have that fear. Your body's just holding it, but it's it's being engineered through your mind. And so figuring out what, teasing those things out, the F, the A, the A, the R. So there's there's a nice long answer to that, but I always have to talk about fear in that way. So it's a, it's a good opportunity to do that. So I would say, tease out what the fear is. 
like for going into a handstand. What is the fear? Is it factual? Do you really think you're going to fall on your face? Do you think you're going to break your neck? Um, And why do you think that? And then is it any of these other things that could be causing that fear? And it could be regret. It could be anger. It could be envy. It could be just... um, your your own doubt and that that is a combination of those things but there's probably not that many people where factually speaking it would be a real um like a a fear that you should pay attention to that you shouldn't try going to a handstand um okay another question i get a lot of pregnancy questions so i'm going to address pregnancy because I, I I literally get questions daily and the questions range from I'm newly pregnant, you know, I'm second trimester pregnant, um, I'm getting back after pregnancy, I had a C-section, all of the above. So I will focus on just a part of that right now in this question because the person asked me getting back after pregnancy, how and when. So I will... Um, Add this caveat. This is from my experience, not only being pregnant, but also uh, witnessing and teaching multiple, many, 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 many yoga teachers and students. And and I don't have a prenatal certification because I don't feel like I necessarily need a prenatal certification because I understand the human body pretty well. And I also think that every Pre, uh, every pregnant woman is going to be different. So here are my big kind of bullet points with that. If you have had a fairly strong practice before you got pregnant, you can continue for as long as it feels comfortable for you in all the ways that it feels comfortable for you if it's smart yoga that you're practicing and if, you're, if your doctor has not given you any limitations. Um, so I've had people that have been practicing with me for a, a period of time, they get pregnant and they continue throughout the entire pregnancy and they make, you know, obviously as the, as the baby expands and the mass is growing in front of you, there's going to be some limitations lowering to the floor. You're going to run into your belly, <laughs> um, certain poses that require a lot of core engagement are going to be more challenging because you don't have that connection to the core as much. But there's a lot of things pregnant women can do. And I feel like we really need to, unless there is some particular reason or your doctor has advised you differently, I think we need to not treat women, pregnant women as um, disabled. (laughs) Okay. But that being said, if you feel like you want to just not do a lot of yoga or whatever it is during your pregnancy, then go with that feeling. You have to do what's right because you need to keep moving. If not anything else, keep moving, keep walking, swim, do your squats, all that stuff that are that is going to help you in the preparation for birth. I would highly recommend not not doing anything. Even when I was pregnant with my son, my second my second child, I um. He, I ha- he was very low, like pressing way down. And so th- when they measured my cervix, it was around 20 weeks. It was the distance between um, kind of like his head and the cervix or something like this was v- small, a short distance. And, and that made them freak out for some reason. <laughs> I think they actually measured incorrectly. And 
I was like, they said like, you need to be on bed rest. And because at 20 weeks, the baby can just slide out and, you know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that's a way to really make somebody fearful. And so I, then my, my OB said, well, you might, you know, I wouldn't say bed rest, but really, um, limited motion, meaning get up when you absolutely have to and limit what you're doing. So for about three weeks, I continued to teach yoga. I had a small home studio and I would just sit on my futon and instruct from my, you know, from my futon. And then I would, you know, walk around to my house and, but everything else was super, super limited. And then I got rechecked and everything was looking fine. And I saw another OBGYN who was at the same office. And he said, this is ridiculous. All the research that's coming out now is saying putting women on bed rest or limited mobility is like the worst thing you can do because they then get deconditioned. They're weaker. The birth is harder. They can't push as much. It's a lot more challenging and actually could lead to more um, problems with the baby because you're not like in good shape to like push the baby out. And so he made me feel really comfortable just getting back to movement. And P.S. My my child was like delayed coming out. Like I mean, he he stayed in there plenty long. So I do think that measurement was wrong. But we can get fearful about that. So I I want to say get do what feels right for you. But I do recommend staying um, active for sure. So getting back after pregnancy, I'm going to say the same caveat. I'm going to tell you what I did, but you, every person is different. I didn't have C-sections. I had vaginal births. I was um, in like pretty good shape in both times. I was doing yoga and walking and I had my, you know, I had my babies and, and pretty much started back to moving, you know, within a couple of hours. I mean, I remember walking with my son who was like three days old on the, on a trail. And my daughter was like three and a half. And I mean, we walked for like three miles and, um, I was thinking, okay, this is probably fine to do. And it was, it was totally fine. Um, but that was fine because my pregnancy was aside from that one little kind of scary mishap thing. Um, it was normal and fine. So I just got back to walking. I was doing some things with my daughter on the trail, like using my foot to make little lines like a hopscotch or a circle because I was, we were just, you know, when you want to make a three-year-old, not make a three-year-old, but when you want to have a three-year-old walk with you, sometimes you have to kind of entertain them. And she was loving this. And I remember the next day I felt really sore in my pubic area because I had been using my leg to like make tic-tac-toe lines in the, in the dirt and all that. And that was probably a little bit too much for the ligaments there that were still quite loose. So you have to remember that those ligaments during the pregnancy, um, there's a there's a hormone called relaxin. And that is literally relaxing um, the ligaments so that you can open up the birth canal and have the baby. And that those ligaments kind of have to come back in, you know, just, they're not going to, they, they didn't stretch out. They just became, they didn't, so that their, their length didn't change but the quality of elasticity changed a little bit with the relaxant hormone. And so they will they will get more rigid again, but it will take a little bit of time. So you want to be aware of not doing big ranges of motion and just more than anything, be, be gentle and kind on yourself that know that your core will come back for sure. If you haven't really had a lot of core before the pregnancy, meaning you haven't really focused in that area. I've seen many women who get back and get even stronger. So the I would say the time range, you're just going to, again, have to go by pregnancy to pregnancy. 
if you had a C-section, obviously there's surgical incisions you have to be aware of and take the time to let those heal. So there's going to be uh, precautions there. But in general, if you had a um, reasonably easy birth, if there is such a thing, (laughs) you can come back and um, start moving right away. And then give yourself, I would say, a good eight weeks before you start doing anything that requires a lot of engagement, um, because those that that the hormone is the hormones that are in you are still going to be present, and still there's going to be some uh, pliability that you that you're going to have to contend with. Um, so you just want to be certainly aware of that. And I would go back to doing a lot of isometric stuff. So with my, once I started, I would say maybe five weeks after my son, I started earlier than that, honestly, as early as it felt right. I started just pulling my belly down and holding it and holding and holding, looking down at it. So I was having this connection and lightly squeezing my sit bones and feeling the pelvic floor. And I would just do that. And that would be like an isometric hold for the abdominal wall. Cause I kind of wanted to wake up that area again. So um, I would start it just just like that, small and simple, and 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 know that you're going to be um, ending up stronger. But take take that time. I don't know if it takes nine. You know, they say nine months to have the baby, nine months to recover. I, I don't think that's true. But uh, maybe being gentle, you could give yourself that kind of time frame. All right, let me see another question here. Oh my goodness, there's so many great questions. Um, Okay, somebody had a pain on the high hamstring that's taking too long to go away. Any t- tip to help it? Well, I did have the hamstring, um, the yoga butt podcast. If you have not heard that already, that was, I think, podcast number 30 with my brother. But I got a lot of questions after that saying, oh gosh, I have this. How long does it take? I'm going to quickly respond to this since I talked about it a lot on the podcast. I will tell you, it depends, but it is a bugger. And you really, really, really need to do the things I talk about on that podcast to strengthen around the muscular tendonous where where the injury was. And just know that it takes time and patience and go more into strength than into pulling it. But keep squeezing like, like almost like you were squeezing um, almost like your mulabanda feeling, but you're hugging the tissues around the sit bones to really, really feel that. And I have a class on um, that I've done as well, but I'll try and do some drills for this. But just think, squeeze your sit bones as many times as you can throughout the day. Okay, so someone asked, how high should a person go in cobra pose? And are there any risk for upward dog or a very high or advanced cobra for the back, any risk on the back? So for cobra, I think the way I instruct it is, and I've been doing this for so long, I don't even really know how other people instruct it. But my my impression is from the questions that I get from people who are coming kind of on the outside and haven't taken my classes, I see them pushing their hands down into the floor to get up with the um, chest. And I don't recommend that at all. I recommend pulling your hands back towards your feet like you were trying to slide on the ground. And then that is going to pull your chest into more of that thoracic extension. And so I think for some people, they're not going to get high at all because they are not used to the engagement that requires in the shoulders 
in the scapula muscles and then the the support on the bottom side, the lower belly lifting away from the floor. So when you push, you're pushing also sometimes the belly down into the floor. And the reason that uh, that to me is not great, and by the way, physical therapist in some of the protocols, that is a, that is a move that people will do in a way to get their disc back kind of in the position if they've had some kind of herniation. I still don't really like that kind of compression on the the low back. Uh, So I would prefer you stay lower and pull back with your hands. So the person said, is there any danger or risk for the back when you go up higher or in an up dog? I think it's the same thing if you're pushing down. So an up dog, if you're pushing and kind of locking out your elbows, your pelvis doesn't have anywhere really to go when you when you straighten your elbows there. It's it's simply mechanics. Your pelvis has to go down and following the pelvis is your low back. So it creates this, it's really a compression for lack of, it's not a lever. It's your, your, you're compressing your low back when you, when you lock your elbows in an up dog or a cobra, a higher cobra. So are there risks? I would say, it's, I, I don't want to be like talking about danger, but I just think there's no point in going that high because yeah, you it doesn't feel good. A lot of people do this over and over again and they dislike back bending because it hurts and there's a reason it hurts because you're compressing that area. So stay lower and pull instead of push. So this was another good question that I get a lot. Can the IT band actually be stretched and or loosened in the hip region? So for those of you uh, who aren't aware of what the IT band is, that stands for iliotibial band. The iliotibial band is actually a tendon that comes off of the, um, the, the where the gluteus maximus and the tensor fascia lata come together and share this connective tissue connection. And then that comes all the way down in the IT band track and inserts onto the side of the knee and even below that. I mean, it has kind of this multiple insertion part. So people will talk, I mean, I remember five years ago um, barking about don't roll your IT band because it was so popular. And I would see people who did this and never, ever, ever felt any better. And I, I was I was like, as a physical therapist, and physical therapists would also recommend it. So, but I always think, why are people rolling the IT band? This is a tendon. You don't tendons don't appreciate that. They have the they have the nociceptors in the connective tissue that surrounds the tendons, and those are the ones that will that that interpret pain and discomfort. But what they don't have is a lot of blood supply, and so there you can injure it over and over again just by by bothering it, bothering those nociceptors. So they're always, they're detecting this discomfort and there's not a lot of healing to it by doing that. So can you stretch it? No, you can't stretch it really. You're not supposed to stretch a tendon. It has some, it has some elastic properties, but not, not a lot. What you, what you need to do is figure out where is the problem originating? And usually it is up in the hip. So when people are standing and they lean out into that lateral hip, they are pushing into the IT band. And it's not, and and that's fine. The IT band is actually part of the fascial network that is 
giving you support. It's kind of like suspenders for your legs, but on the lateral seam. But you don't want to go and like hang out on those suspenders because those the suspenders like can have a little give, but they're really supposed to have that give and to like springboard you back, like not to have you be, be held in that position. So I, what I would say is don't try and stretch it out. I would be um, more aware of the position of your pelvis. Is Are you in neutral pelvis, meaning is it tipped one in anterior posterior? And then are you leaning laterally where you're kind of pushing your femoral head, the thigh bone out and having it press up against the, um, the tissues around the iliotibial band? Uh, so don't stretch it, but strengthen the hips and and check again on the neutral pelvis. And I think that that's going to take care of a lot of the IT bend stuff. All right. And, and, and also strengthen your gluteus medius because gluteus medius, if it's weaker, the TFL tensor fascia lata is a little bit closer to the front of the body. It's more anterior and it can be used a lot. And it's really, um, it's, it's not made to be used to stabilize you in the same way that gluteus medius is when you're weight-bearing. So I'm going to take one more question here. Um, a lot of people ask about, <laughs> oh my gosh, cracking of bones, cracking noises that are made, um, crack. I mean, just there's a lot of like, is cracking okay? Cracking in my sternum, I hear cracking in my outer hip, my shoulder blades crack. So there's, I think it used to be thought of as that cracking something or the noises associated with that could be kind of self-perpetuating. Meaning if you crack something like cracking your knuckles, you're going to have to keep cracking them. And there is like ideas that there were pockets of air in your joint space and all of this stuff. And what they figured out is that I've said this before, but our bodies are noisy and we're going to make noise. And if like the fascia is not very hydrated, like kind of gliding over uh, the tissue underneath it, but more kind of adhered to it, then it will it will it will lose some of that um, suppleness. And when you start moving um, the area around it, sometimes that can even make that kind of crackly noises, especially around your scapula. If you have cracking like in your knee, and but there's no pain associated, there might not be anything that's wrong per se, but I would still use, that cracking as a like as a tool of investigation like hmm why is it cracking is it just cracking because it's just noisy or is there am i going into the structure and maybe right not maybe maybe not now is it bother going to bother it but in the future it could so i would say in general it depends on the area that's cracking so somebody that's cracking in their sternum the manubrium the area around the the sternum itself that has a lot of cartilage to it um, cartilage can be noisy too. And if you're sitting and then you open up the chest, there are times where that can pop. Now, if it's popping and crackling all the time, I would say, look at what you're doing, how you're inhabiting your your posture most of the time. And could something about that be improved so that you don't like, have that response of cracking all the time? So I think cracking is more of a just it's an awareness. It might not mean anything and it's really nothing to be alarmed by, but perhaps there could be something that you could do better in terms of your movement pattern or your posture. So I hope those, I have like many, many more questions, but I will 
hold on to them for a later time. It's always fun to answer questions. I feel like my classes are a workshop and a class, a movement experience all in one. So if you check out my lit daily classes on my website, you will notice that the way that I talk and language things is really for an educational purpose. It's from the lens as a physical therapist, always wanting to reset the body to move better from a place of the architecture of the body, the understanding of the body, and the evolution of movement that we need to take into our lives because our modern day life is different than it was even 20 years ago. So check out my classes. I have a three-day free trial so you can check it out. There's a new class every single day. That means 365 days of the year, you're going to take a different class. And there's they, they will repeat. You'll see them again, but they're done and they're put out in a very, very specific order. It has such therapeutic value because it's it's a holistic approach. And many people will benefit. Athletes, physical therapists, personal trainers, yoga teachers, and then yoga practitioners. Anyone who's interested in moving better should check it out. So I also answer questions on that platform, on my movementbylaura.com platform. So check it out and let me know what else you would like to hear about. Thank you so much for listening today. Keep moving, keep inquiring how you can move through your life, in your body, in your behavior, in your actions, more clearly and more compassionately. And I am moving there with you.